Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 38 for the first quarter of June 2012. The topic I'm going to interview about today is radiometric dating, the how-it-works part. Next episode will be an application episode dealing with young Earth creationist claims related to radiometric dating. As I said, I'll be interviewing today about radiometric dating. Being trained as an astronomer, I have never really learned the hows and whys of radiometric dating, just picked up enough to get by. So today, my guest for the main segment is Rachel Axe, and that is her real name, no more pseudonyms. It seems like half of my interviews are with anonymous people. Rachel, however, is not. She is loud and out there, and a geology graduate student who is currently leasing her soul to an oil company, having just moved to Texas last week for the summer. I met Rachel through the local skeptics groups, and we've been cheering each other on over the last few years, and I asked her at the last Skepticamp last month if she'd come on to talk about radiometric dating, and she agreed. So, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stuart. So, let's get right down to it. Uh, In these kinds of episodes, I like to give background on the topic. So, could you tell us a brief history about radiometric dating? Um, So, probably the first thing I should actually say is that I, I am not a geochemist. I am a sedimentary geologist. So, a lot of times my my personal research experience with radiometric dating is, oh, I'll let the geochemists take care of that. But I do have, you know, an understanding of how it works. And you've taught people how it works. Yeah. I, I, I tutor a lot of kids and, you know, I've, I've got the, the good basic explanation. Um, where radiometric dating comes in with geology is actually before we knew about radioactivity. So before radiometric dating and, um, Geologists were, were having paroxysms trying to figure out how old the Earth actually was, or how old it is, since it still exists, funny enough. No, which um, is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, obviously there was a transition from the belief in the young Earth to old Earth, which... There, there's there's been a, a, actually a very long-term belief in that the Earth is pretty old, but we really started seeing that, you know, a young earth was kind of impossible once you got into like James Hutton doing all of his research up in Scotland. And so this is like, you know, end of 17th century was when Steno came up with, with the first few law geological laws, like superposition where, you know, Hey, if it's on the top, it's probably younger than the stuff on the bottom. Cause we know how layer cakes are put together. And, uh, Charles Lyell in the 19th century was, the one who really got the ball rolling on the idea of relative dating where you could use like Steno's laws and a whole host of other things like the idea of cross-cutting relationships like hey if there's a volcanic dike cutting across a bunch of rock layers that's got to be younger than the stuff it cuts across well that makes sense yeah you know it's, it's all very it seems like very common sense stuff to us but it was revolutionary in the 19th century so that started building this very kind of robust idea of, well, this thing is older than this, and this thing is younger than this, and putting things in order. And at that time, we also started really getting into biostratigraphy, where you'd look at, you know, suites of fossils, and you could be like, hey, well, you know, if it's got like this ammonite and this other thing, then that's probably the same age as this other rock that has the, uh, the ammonite and the other thing in it. And when you say the same age as, you don't mean like it was made the exact same year. You mean the general epoch, like plus or minus a million years or a thousand? Well, I mean, at that, at that point, we couldn't say plus or minus a million or a thousand years. We could just say, hey, this, you know, we know that this ammonite lived for a certain period of time. So if it exists in this rock, then that rock was, you know, um, formed during that period of time. Okay. And so that's actually with biostratigraphy. That's how we um, defined the epochs and periods and all that, which is why then when you look at the ac- actual absolute age dates that are given to things, they're obviously, 
you know, some of them are really long and some of them are really short. And you're kind of like, what were these people thinking? Well, it, it's all because it has to do with the fossils that were used to define that period of time because they didn't actually know how long those, you know, how long those organisms lived before they went extinct. They just were like, oh, you know, Ammonite A, he defines the Cretaceous or whatever it was. Okay, and actually I think that's an important point to make and one that I'll be talking about more in the next episode is that on Earth we put together the geologic or biogeologic column before we actually knew how old stuff was. So it was really a column of fossil epochs. And then once we were able to apply ages, then we we put numbers to it. But it was really based on the fossils to start off with, right? Yeah, that is precisely how it worked. And that's why when you then look at the absolute age dates, they, you know, for the starting period of, of or the start and end of the different periods, they look kind of weird. Like you're, you're like, why did someone choose that as the endpoint? Well, it's because that's when the fossil we used to define that period went extinct. Or because, the animal that made the fossil. Ended. Yeah, well, yeah, there you go, the animal that made the fossil. So, yeah, I mean, we didn't have a way of doing absolute age dates at that point. So it was all relative. Okay. So then um, the, the other thing I, that I guess is probably worth bringing up is that um, Lord Kelvin tried to do an age estimate for the Earth based on cooling rates. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be, like, better than a young earth but still not nearly old enough because at that point he didn't know about radioactivity which you know there's still a lot of heat left in the earth and a lot of its residual heat but we're constantly adding more heat you know in the in the from the core radiating outward because we still have all this radioactive decay <laughs> right i think i actually mentioned in uh in my skeptic Camp talk which yes you did bonus episode 36 <laughs> that Kelvin got an age of somewhere, something like 40 to 200, or it was 20 to 400, one of those million years old for the age of the Earth, but he didn't know about the radioactivity. And and was my number correct that it's really been about the last 3 billion years or so that most of Earth's heat has been due to radioactive uh, decay? Or That I actually don't know. Right. I just know that... Some you know a, a hefty portion of it is, which is why you know Lord Kelvin gave it a good try, but no, <laughs> right? So and, yeah, go on. And well, and, and the thing is, his uh, his attempted estimate from looking at cooling was actually still at more accurate than a lot of estimates other people try to do, like based on erosion rates and deposition rates and all that. Mm-hmm. Which I've actually seen. Um, quite a few creationist arguments that kind of hinge on this idea of erosion rates and depositional rates and it you know back back then people had an excuse for for not really being able to to come up with anything close to accurate just looking at erosion and deposition rates because they lacked an understanding of some very fundamental stuff that affects it which is you know plate tectonics because plate tectonics it controls uplift if you don't understand plate tectonics you're not going to get a really accurate idea of erosion rates or deposition rates or anything like that and the theory of plate tectonics didn't come in until what the 1920s or so yeah the the theory well and the thing is i mean i have teachers at at cu boulder that um uh, one of the guys who taught my seminar he when he was an undergrad plate tectonics had finally they'd really started like teaching it as this is the thing you know it was like one semester they were still talking about like you know continental monocline theory or whatever the heck it was and then the next semester they're like plate tectonics so it was this you know and suddenly everything makes sense it's nice when stuff does that yeah, which is actually then where we can bring relative dating back into absolute dating because, you know, radioactivity was discovered, what, in like um, right before 1900, I think like 1896, I believe. Yeah. So at that point, we're like, well, we know that radioactivity happens, but using that radioactivity and, you know, starting to find out about parent and daughter isotopes and all that. You didn't really start getting that until like the 20s and 30s, and then our more modern techniques didn't actually get put into use until the 1950s. So radiometric dating is actually also extremely recent. 
In terms of the history of science in the last few hundred years, yeah. Yeah. So then, um, I think that's yeah a, an interesting history into the uh, relative age dating that we did, and then we started to once we were able to figure out radiometric dating, what it was, which I believe came in with Ernest Rutherford in 1905. Then we were able to start to put absolute ages to these different things. And if people haven't quite figured out what relative and absolute age dating is, don't worry, I'm going to go into it in gory detail in episode 40 on crater age dating, because that's all relative dating. So then let's get into the basics of how the theory works. I mean, you mentioned parent and daughter isotopes. So let's avoid a heavy discussion of quantum mechanics. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, because neither of us are incredibly qualified to talk about that. So let's, but let's get into the basics of you know. You mentioned parent and daughter. What are they? How do they relate to radiometric dating? How does the basic technique work? The first thing is we know what an atom is. You've got protons and neutrons, and you know if it's electrically neutral, there's the number of electrons around the the nucleus of the atom, and they match the number of protons. Each number of protons, you know, dictates a unique element. Mm -hmm. um, and then what the neutrons do is they actually dictate the isotopes of that element. So we have eight protons in any given oxygen. So the, the two common isotopes of oxygen are oxygen-16 and oxygen-18. And oxygen-16, well... We know it's got eight protons, so it's got eight neutrons. Eight plus eight is sixteen. And then the other isotope, it's got, it's still got eight protons, but it's got eight, or it's got ten neutrons. So eight plus ten is eighteen. So they're still the same element, but one of them's heavier than the other because it's got more neutrons. So that's kind of the basics of what is an isotope. And then you get into this idea that there are stable isotopes. And there are unstable isotopes. And stable isotopes are like, hey, I'm hanging out with my eight protons and ten neutrons, and I'm totally happy, and it can just go on like that until the end of time. It's, it's, a, it's a stable configuration with the way all of the, the nuclear forces hold everything together in, the, in, in that nucleus. You've got the, the stable and the unstable isotopes. So unstable isotopes for reasons that we need not go into at this time they've got a number of protons and neutrons that they're just not happy they you know they can't sit well together at some point it's going to undergo a process called decay or radioactive decay and there's a bunch of different types of, of decay which again we probably don't really need to get into at this very moment but what's going or what is likely to happen in radioactive decay is that something within the nucleus of the atom will change. Like a proton will turn into a neutron or a neutron will turn into a proton or it'll spit out a helium or whatever happens, whatever type of decay it undergoes. And each unstable isotope has its preferred kind of decay that happens. Um, that will change the number of protons in the nucleus and literally cause it to become another element. Or an isotope of that element. Yes, or an isotope of a different element. I mean, for radiometric dating, we're really, for the most part, looking at it used to be one element, now it's another element. It was a, and most of the time, it's it was a radioactive element, and then it decayed into a, a stable isotope of another element. Okay. And I think it's important to also mention uh, that you're. It sounds like you're using weasel words like probably and likely to happen. And I think it's important to say that the reason that you're using those words is that this is a quantum mechanical process, and so it is inherently a probabilistic one. You can't say what definitely will happen. It's only what is likely to happen. Yeah, well, and, and there's also that big thing where anyone who's done science for any length of time starts using the word probably a lot or likely a lot because – there's always that little tiny bit of uncertainty that you just don't feel comfortable glossing over. Right. right. The, the thing about this, this radioactive decay is that you can't take a given atom of an unstable isotope of an element and look at it and say, 
I know exactly when this thing will decay. There is a constant sort of probability associated with will it go now or not. And so that's where you start getting into the idea of the decay constant and half-lives and how that works. So I don't know. Have, have, I, have I covered well enough the principles of isotopes? I think so. In gory okay. detail. <laughs> so this is kind of like the, the place where it starts getting a little a little weirder, but this is also why it's, it's really useful for figuring out um, age dates, is say you take a bucket of unstable isotope atoms. We'll, we'll pick... Um, How about carbon-14? Carbon-14, that's everybody's favorite. So carbon-14 is actually kind of cool because it's got a pretty short half-life. And so what a half-life is, is if I took a bucket full of carbon-14 atoms, which are radioactive, and when they decay, they decay into nitrogen, I can, I can take that bucket and I can say that if I let it sit there for 5,730 years, half of what is in that bucket will decay to nitrogen, and half of it will still be carbon-14. I can't tell you precisely which atoms... Will turn into will turn into nitrogen, and which ones will stay carbon? But I can tell you that half of them will go. Okay, and that's kind of the probability of it. And then if if we leave that bucket sitting there for another fifty seven thirty years, then the remaining amount of carbon fourteen, half of it will turn into nitrogen. So it's this exponential decay where every time you take that remaining amount of your carbon fourteen, and half of it decays. So it's every- almost like Zeno's paradox, where you keep getting halfway closer to the finish line. First, it's a half of it, then it's three quarters, then seven eighths of the original sample will be gone, and then uh, 15 sixteenths as you go another half-life, and that kind of thing? Yeah. So, you know, eventually, theoretically, you'll, you'll have one lonely little atom of carbon-14 left in your bucket, and at some, time, at some point, it should go, but then the probability starts getting kind of weird, and I'm sure there's quantum mechanics, and then my head would explode. <laughs> Okay, well, let's avoid that then. So, say so I think you've explained half-lives pretty well, and we'll get into later how we actually measure those half-lives. Uh, but so then, what do you do with the half-life, and what do you do... So, what's the actual technique? Like, if I were to take a hunk of, of a skull, you know, if I got my hands on a skull and I took a hunk of it to a lab, what would they do in order to age-date that with carbon-14? So kind of the most basic idea for how you would then use this um, to age date is, first off, we can just start with the perfect world example. That's always um, nice, yeah. Yeah. So we, we, ha- we have our sample of the skull, and in a perfect world, it starts out with your standard amount of carbon-14, which is the standard amount that was in the atmosphere, and we could go into why that gets kind of weird. I but- do want to in, the, uh, in a bit. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so it has your standard amount of atmospheric carbon-14, and then no nitrogen-14, because it's a perfect world. So we take it to the lab, and they throw it in their mass spectrometer, and they say, aha, now it has this much carbon-14 and this much nitrogen-14. So then you can just do some, you know, you, you pick up your uh, your equation that says, this is how much parent I have, which is the carbon-14, and this is how much daughter I have, which is the nitrogen-14, and I do the math, and this is how old it is. Ta-da! So that's the perfect world, and things don't really work like that, because most of the time you're not going to have a sample that, say, has it, you know the carbon-14 and it had no nitrogen-14 in it to start with, so then we know that if there's any nitrogen-14 in there at all, it's because the carbon-14 decayed. Okay, so then how do we know if there was any daughter particle present in the sample to begin with? So this gets into the, the, the technique called isochron dating, which is the more standard one that's used because it, it is a lot more robust and it means that there could have been some daughter present. It's, it's a little more complicated where you end up taking multiple samples. Say, I'm, I'm most familiar with how you would use it in like... Um, dating a lava flow so if you were going to use like uranium lead okay let's use um, that as an example so you'd go into your lava flow and you're like well i can tell this lava flow is basically spit out of the volcano you know it's it's a giant flow of lava on the ground so it's all going to be the same age it cooled at the same time 
and then you can go through your, your lava flow and take multiple samples and then get different samples for that mass, mass spectrometry from different minerals because different minerals like picking up um, different elements and the big thing that you're looking for there is you actually want to see kind of a, a, a variation in um, how much of the daughter is present because you've got for, for, for most for stable isotopes um, there tend to be very standard ratios that you get them in. Like, you know, there's a standard 86 to 87 strontium ratio that you just find globally. So if you know what your standard ratio is, and then you take your sample that had the radioactivity where the parent's decaying into the daughter, that, that will add an isotope, you know, that will add atoms of that daughter. So that'll throw your, your stable isotope ratio off if that makes sense. So then you can be like, aha, well, if this is my stable isotope ratio, then it's now off by this amount in this sample, which means there's this much extra of the daughter in there, which means that's the stuff that was produced by the parent. Okay, so basically you're saying that on average globally, and this has been measured many, many times, many, many places, there is sort of a known ratio, a known background ratio in the environment that exists of a parent and a daughter. And so then what you can do is you can assume that that was incorporated into the sample when it solidified and became a closed system, and then you're measuring a deviation from that? Um, It's actually not the known ratio of parent to daughter. It's the known ratio of the daughter to another stable isotope of the same type. So actually, I'm going to jump away from uranium led to, to one that I, I've actually got an example right here of. So strontium, there's a known worldwide ratio of 86 strontium, or sorry, 87 strontium to 86 strontium. Okay, and those numbers are the sum of the protons and the neutrons? Yeah. Okay. And so the reason we care about 87 strontium is that 87 strontium exists on its own, but it is also the daughter of 87 rubidium. Okay. Generally speaking, you know, you you can take a sample of something like a sample from the crust and your standard ratio of 87 to 86 strontium is 0.716, about. Okay. So then if we're going to try to date something using rubidium strontium, then we can be like, aha, you know, our ratio in this sample of 87 to 86 strontium is actually 0.823, but we know the standard is 0.716, so therefore the ratio is off, and the, the amount by which it's off is how much of that 87 strontium was added by the decay of 87 rubidium. Okay. Then how do we know that that global average is actually applicable to that sample? Like, how do we know that there wasn't a hot spot of the uh, of one of those uh, isotopes in that region? So, I mean, the thing is, it's it's a global average. So then you start kind of getting into, you know, have you ta- taken a sufficient amount of samples? And also, the thing is, if you get a really really wacky answer, then you want to go check it with something else. Okay. And so we're kind of you... starting to get away from from the stuff that I know. Okay. Sorry. Uh, but so the, the basic idea, though, is that you can use multiple techniques then in that case. And if you get a weird answer that doesn't make sense, then you go back and look for other things to check it. Like, we don't just take a weird answer and go with it. You take a weird answer and you want to figure out if it really is weird or if there is you know, solid evidence for it being weird. Yeah, because, I mean, some some very interesting science happens because you find an anomaly, but I, I would I would hazard a guess and say, you know, 99% of the time, if you get an anomaly in your data, your reaction isn't necessarily sweet. I've discovered something new. You're like, oh, crap, what did, what's wrong with this? Okay, so then let's... You talked about so how we can figure out 
or estimate how much of the daughter particle would have been present in the sample to begin with to try to alleviate that as a source of error. And also, I mean, obviously these come with error bars, so the error bars in there would also include, like, okay, well, what's the standard variation of um, of the global average, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So another thing that I that you mentioned that I would like to talk about is how we actually know the half-lives of some of these elements. I mean, you mentioned that, for example, carbon-14 has a short half-life, relatively speaking, but that that half-life is 5,730 years, plus or minus you know, 50 or something. So how do we actually measure how long these half-lives are, especially of much longer-lived isotopes? Now, obviously, you can't take a bucket of carbon-14 and let it sit there and, you know, measure how long it takes for half of it to turn into to nitrogen. Well, you could, but it would be a really, really long experiment. <laughs> right. Um, the thing is, so the, the half-life is actually calculated from a different number that's called the decay constant. And, you know, the way it works is the, the half-life is calculated as um, the natural log of 2 divided by the decay constant. Okay. And um, so I think actually what we're doing, and, and God knows you might get an email about this, um, as far as I know, what we're actually doing is we measure the decay constant and then use the de- decay constant to determine the half-life. Okay, then how do we know the decay constant? So the decay constant is actually a thing you can measure because you can take your your wad of radioactive stuff and put it on a, a detector and see the rate at which it emits radiation. Okay. You know, the rate at which it decays because then, you know, experimentally after you've gone through enough inter- iterations, you're going to kind of get the probabilistic idea of at what rate is a given amount of the substance, you know, going to decay. So you said you can't take a bucket of this stuff and watch it decay. Well, isn't, you know, it's, it's not exactly the same thing, but isn't it sort of the same thing where you actually are taking a hunk of that sample and letting it sit on some apparatus that is detecting the rate at which it's pinging off stuff? In other words, the rate at which it is decaying? No, that's exactly right. What I meant is you can't, you know, take your your bucket of potassium and wait the uh, 1.3 billion years to see if that's exactly how long it takes to for half of it to decay. Okay, okay. So I think then an important point is to make that, yes, we do actually measure this. These aren't guesses that we do have, and many labs have tried and you know, succeeded and added another data point to this is the decay constant for this particular isotope and from the decay constant you do something with the log of two and you get the half-life yeah i mean that was actually like a little um experiment i got to do in in the experimental physics class i had to take as an undergrad at cu is you get like a a really a non-dangerous radioactive emitter and you sit there with a with a detector and you you count how many times it it ticks in a minute and, you know, you repeat that like five times and then you do a bunch of math and you're like, ah, oh, this is the decay constant for this substance. And did you get the right answer? <laughs> I, I got an OK grade on that lab, so I'm assuming so. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so then this is already running longer than I had, I had hoped, um, but that's, it's okay. that's I fine. a lot. <laughs> no, I, I think it's interesting. And it's important. This is an incredibly important concept because it really is the underpinnings today of almost everything we know about absolute ages, and not just on Earth, but as I'll be talking about in episode 40, ages throughout the entire solar system. Uh, So I I had one or two more things left to ask you about. Uh, The first one was, how do geologists and labs that do this kind of work avoid, deal with, or even recognize contamination of a sample? Because we haven't explicitly mentioned it yet, but... This whole technique requires that you have a closed system. In other words, that the parent doesn't escape or doesn't get added to, and the daughter doesn't escape or gets added to. You have to have it closed, otherwise you're not going to be able to measure an accurate ratio of how much of the parent has decayed into the daughter. So how do 
how do we recognize whether or not something's been contaminated or how do we avoid that? So there's kind of a couple different dimensions to this. I mean, the isochron dating method, which, gosh, I wish I was a geochemist so I could really get into this with you. I do know that that if there has been contamination and the system has not remained closed for for parent and daughter or parent or daughter – when, when you do when you do isochron, which I think is like it's, it has something like four different at least four different samples, and normally you're you're taking a lot of samples and then you actually graph how the parent versus daughter ratio is versus you know the daughter to the other stable isotope ratio is. If there's been contamination, um, they don't graph in a linear way. Where if if it is a perfect beautiful closed system, they're collinear. So that that's what like this act this dating technique means you can look at your graph and be like wow this you know there there has been a thing that has gone wrong and these samples are just not going to work. Okay, so so you're saying that when you have multiple mineral samples or whatever multiple parts of a skull or something and you graph the daughter relative to a stable element or a different stable element and the parent relative to the stable element if there hasn't been any contamination, um, then you assume – or if there hasn't been any contamination, then these data points are going to be a line, a straight line on this graph. And if there has been contamination in different ways of the different samples, then there's going to be a bunch of scatter about what would be or should be a straight line. Yeah, so it would be – okay, so imagine we've got our graph and the y-axis, you know, if we're going to use rubidium strontium again because I actually remember the isotopes for that, the y-axis would be your 87 to 86 strontium ratio. And that's the daughter to to another stable. Yeah, and then your x-axis is going to be your 87 rubidium to 87 strontium. Which is the parent to the other stable. No, it's the parent to the daughter. Oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, no, that, that's fine. That's why I wanted to clarify. So then if you have a good sample, you'll get like a nice, you know, a nice um, line that'll be like, you know, a, a line with a it, – it's not going to be flat, but it'll be a line with a positive slope that all your, your samples will fall along. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, if you get like weird scatter or they're all lining up horizontally or something like that, that means that there is a problem and it's not a good sample set. Okay. So that that's a thing that you discover when you actually go and 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 get the samples run, and you can you know say, wow, you know these are not going to work for for isochron dating. The system has obviously not remained closed. Um, a lot of it, geologically speaking, is just understanding what makes a good sample or not. Okay. Like so, when you're uh, actually in the field, how do you choose a good sample? Yeah. Well, I mean, to start with. You, you don't take a sample off the rock face <laughs> most of the time. You have to, to kind of get in there a little where past the weathering zone where it hasn't been altered. But it's like knowing um, you can't really radiometrically date sedimentary rocks. Now, I, I'm, I'm sure that you could get an email about this because there there are probably some, some things you can do. But generally speaking, you can't radiometrically date sedimentary rocks because if you radiometrically date a sedimentary rock – or particularly a clastic sedimentary rock where it's made of bits of other rocks, which is where my area is. So, you know, that's what I immediately think of. Anyway, if you if you date a sandstone, it's not going to tell you when the sandstone formed. It's going to tell you when, you know, the igneous rock that got weathered to form that sandstone formed. So okay. clastic sedimentary rocks, not terribly useful. You can actually do some radiometric dating on um, on some limestones, which is kind of cool. But okay. but that's kind of like a whole other ball of wax, um, you know. If if the rock has obviously undergone uh, metamorphism, that that actually breaks the system. That that reopens the system. So then, when you date that rock, you're not dating the you're not really dating the original rock as such. Though I, I know that there have been some metamorphic rocks that well actually. It's it's they've dated it to like you know four billion years old, which tells you well obviously there was something older than that because that rock got metamorphosed. So you know when a rock undergoes metamorphosis, that that kind of opens the system. When it cools back down, the system's closed again. So your clock is set from the time the rock underwent metamorphosis. Okay. Um, so it's it's that kind of thing is just knowing what it is you're actually testing. You know you don't test the sandstone. You 
we 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 love lava flows okay because they're they're wonderful for that kind of thing we love ash layers so volcanic rocks are are really kind of where it's at for for radiometric dating for the most part uh, unless you're you know going out and using uh, uranium thorium on uh on uh ancient coral reefs okay so you're basically saying uh, then that in sort of in anticipation of the next episode when I talk about some creationism stuff, you're basically saying that geologists aren't stupid and they're not going to go out and just take a random rock and send it to a lab, that you have to actually use a rock that satisfies a set of conditions in order to properly use the technique for, that you want to use. Yeah, and, and you know that that then rolls into the idea of, well, you know, you don't take a volcanic rock and then go carbon date it because it's not going to really have that much carbon in it to begin with, probably, and it's probably going to be older than you know what is it forty thousand years, so carbon's not going to be useful. So then, actually, that leads well into uh, one of my final questions is that nothing exists in a vacuum in science and that we've thrown out at least four or five different radiometric techniques. And I think it's important to point out that these are all used to calibrate each other and that they are able to be used as like a ladder, a stepping stone from one technique to the next, to the next, to the next in terms of ages. And I was wondering if maybe you could go into that a little bit. Well, Every every ra- um, every pair of parent and daughter, and the ones I'm most familiar with are like potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium, uranium, thorium, and then like rhenium, osmium, not because that's necessarily one that gets used that commonly, but that's actually something that gets used in um, uh, marine geochemistry, and I took a class last semester, so it's still in my brain. Okay. Um, so they, they, you can use them to... to calibrate each other to a certain extent because you know like your your potassium argon has a 1.3 billion year um half-life where rubidium strontium has i believe 50 billion years so you know you can be like well if you, you can you can hopefully get matching ages out of those um there's also uh for uranium lead uranium lead is kind of cool because there's actually several different radioactive isotopes of uranium that uh, decay into different isotopes of lead. Okay. And uh, uh, U-235 through its decay series, which it doesn't decay directly. There's like a whole series of half steps and it gets kind of weird. But U-235 decays into lead 207 and that has a seven, 700 million year half-life whereas U- U-238 decays into lead 206 and that has a 4.5 billion year half-life so you can actually kind of calibrate it against itself but i think kind of the obsession with the absolute age date numbers actually misses why these radiometric dating methods are so utterly robust okay and the fact you know, and then this is, you know, maybe it's from the perspective of a geologist, but before we ever put absolute age dates on anything, we had an exceptionally good set of relative age dates for everything. You know, every everything that we had an outcrop for, at least. Okay. So this gets back into the whole, you know, tying it full circle, this gets yeah. back into the whole biostratigraphy. Yeah. So, I mean, geologists have been working on this for, you know, two, three hundred years where we have a pretty good idea of how old everything on the Earth is in a relative sense. So when we got in there from the 50s onward and started um, age dating things within that, that geological column, because if you think about it, particularly because so much of our, our uh, time scale from, you know, the appearance of life onward is obviously based on fossil evidence. Mm-hmm. Most of that stuff you, you're going to find in clastic sedimentary rocks, which you can't, you can't normally age date. Um, 
but there's like ash beds and lava flows and all that. So then you can be like, aha, well, this lava flow cuts through this, you know, this rock layer here, which we know is then the same age as this other one over here. And, and it just is this like beautiful propagation. So the whole point is we had a very good data set of relative age dating. And as soon as we got in there and we started putting absolute age dates to everything using these, these various radiometric techniques, all of the ages made sense. Wow. We didn't get like weird numbers, you know, like, well, this, this thing at the bottom of the strat column is 700 million years old, but the thing, you know, three layers above it age dates to like, you know, 900 million years old. No, we didn't get stuff like that. So, when we started putting absolute age dates to things, there wasn't some kind of random dispersal. They fit very well with all of the relative age dating we'd already done, and it made sense. I think that's actually a very important story. Uh, it it all ties together, and one completely independent technique for age dating, radiometric dating, supported and agreed with the other completely independent technique, which was the stratigraphy that the geologists had developed over the last you know, two centuries before that. Exactly. And I think, you know, like creationists, and a lot of people really get hung up on the absolute age dating because it's a number and we really like having a set number like, oh, we know this thing is 514 million years old, plus or minus 0.6 million years. And the absolute age dates are nice, but I, I think particularly if you if you do sedimentary geology like I do, they're they're not kind of the be all and end all because most of what you do is still looking at it and being like, hey, you know, my top layer is younger than my bottom layer, <laughs> and these are my fossils because I don't have an ash layer, so I, I can only give you a, a more ballpark estimate of how old it is because these strata because they have these fossils, are the same age as these other strata over here, which do have an ash layer above and below them. (laughs) Well, and that's actually also something that I'll be talking about in episode 40 about crater age dating, is that, (laughs) I mean, we we can sort of assign absolute ages, and usually they support the relative ages, but we, in crater age dating, and so, for example, on work on Mars, it's really the relative stratigraphy, and when the ages support that, it's always a very nice story to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was all that I had written down, but you had brought up something else that I, I hoped we could quickly touch on, and that's with other atmospheric or environmental levels of different um, of your of your calibration isotopes throughout time. So I know, for example, that people have used carbon and have done a lot of studies throughout the last uh, 10-ish thousand years to try to figure out if the amount of environmental carbon, I think 14 or 13 or 12 or something, has been stable relative to other amounts, and it hasn't. And this changes how the ages are actually calculated. And I was wondering if you could go into that at all. So this is actually something that we talked about in marine geochemistry. So (laughs) I I, I do kind of know what's going on with it. So basically, there's two different carbon-14 numbers that get used. There's the one that we have today, and um, there's the one that's called the pre-industrial pre-nuclear. Okay. Um, And that's because during... Uh, the Industrial Revolution, we started burning a lot of coal, and coal has a lot of carbon-14 in it for arcane reasons that, if people are really curious about, there's an excellent article on Talk Origins about it. Um, but, so, if you if you start burning your, your coal that has a lot of carbon-14 in it, you start putting a lot of extra carbon-14 into the atmosphere. So, stuff that is forming today, organic matter that's forming today... That, that's picking up carbon has more carbon 14 in it than the same you know the same tree that lived uh, 5,000 years ago would have had in it to start with and then that amount of carbon 14 in the atmosphere got another boost when we started doing atmospheric nuclear tests <laughs> so there's a lot more radioactive carbon 14 around today than there was in the past. 
and that mostly is just something that's going to affect more more recent stuff but it means that um geochemists kind of have to keep that in mind when they're they're doing age dating okay so you're basically saying that this is another issue with age dating but that we know about it and we take it into account when calculating this stuff and that the very simple equations that you see online or in textbooks interlevel textbooks aren't the exact equations that we use because we have to factor in this kind of stuff. And we do factor in this kind of stuff when reporting ages, right? Exactly. Well, and, and I mean, particularly when we start getting the the post, you know, the, the pre-industrial, pre-nuclear carbon-14 is, is I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get you hate mail by claiming it's simple, but it's a lot more standard than suddenly we started pouring all this carbon-14 in the atmosphere, and then we created a whole bunch more with nuclear bombs, but then it's also decaying. So, um, bless the geochemists. They know what they're doing. Um, That's always nice to know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the carbon-14 issue for stuff is pretty pretty hairy for recent things but it's also to keep in mind is you know this is only what the last 200 years 300 years at most okay so barely even a tenth of a half-life yeah i mean so basically the the real change in in the carbon 14 atmospheric amounts started happening when we started burning coal in fantastic amounts and i mean that actually screwed up all of all of the carbon ratios so to speak because um coal is highly you know it's it's compressed organic matter and organic matter is highly enriched in carbon 12 so we're you know we've, we've shifted our, our carbon 12 to 13 ratio in in an unnatural way but it's still kind of interesting because then you can track it to, to looking at your 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 uh, 13 to 12 ratio from the past which is that that's a whole other ball of wax that has nothing to do with radiometric dating okay it's more of an environmental thing all right. Um, well, I think that we've covered most of the basics and the intro stuff that is at least important for getting across the idea of yeah, the very basic idea of how radiometric dating works and how you know some of the potential hiccups with the technique, but that geologists aren't stupid and physicists aren't stupid and they've figured out how to account for these hiccups and how to use that when determining ages. And that in the end, you know, although the ages are nice to be able to report, well, this skull is 900 years old, or that this lava flow happened 4.3 million years ago, what's really important, at least as far as most geologists are concerned, is that the relative stratigraphy supports the absolute ages, and the absolute ages through radiometric dating support the relative stratigraphy. Yeah, so it's it's one of those things where it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Where if you get a funky number out of your radiometric dating that doesn't, you know, fit with the stratigraphy, then you have to sit there and you have to figure out either okay, what happened, what went wrong with the radiometric date, because you know something could have gotten screwed up there, or how did I do my stratigraphy wrong? And then if you know you can't figure it out, then you publish, and then people will figure it out for you. And then and then your fellow geologists eat your lunch, but eventually the problem gets figured out. Or maybe you actually have discovered something that is completely different. Yeah, and and I'm sure that when we started getting absolute age dates, there probably were some places where it turned out the stratigraphy was not what we had thought, or that things needed to be moved around a little. So, you know, it's 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 a really it's it's a nice check and balance. But I, I don't think, you know, there there's necessarily like the absolute age date is God because we, we do know that there's um there's a certain there's error, there's human error, there's mathematical errors, there's Yes. <laughs> you know, we we're a self correcting system. All right. Um is there anything else that I think, or that you think we've left out from the basics, or? Um, let me check my notes. Hopefully, I'm just not going to get you too much email, you know, like hate mail. 
Um, I'll forward it to you. <laughs> no, don't do that. I'll be sad. Um, no, that's that's pretty much everything that I had. All right. Well, in that case, I think I will say uh, thank you and have a good rest of your sad- Sunday. All right. I'll, I'll talk to you later, Stuart. Thanks again to Rachel for joining us today on this episode of Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy. I realize that there may have been a few confusing points in today's episode. This is an incredibly important concept, radiometric dating as a whole, in terms of how we know about the ages of things on Earth and throughout the entire solar system. So if you do have any questions or there were any confusing parts please send me an email, podcast at sjrdesign.net, and I'll try to clarify any of your questions in the next episode, episode 39. I did intend to do the normal segments during this episode, but considering that we're already past the 50-minute mark, I'm going to forego the Q&A, feedback, puzzler, and other things until the next episode, episode 39. So, with that said... That wraps up this topic for the 38th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or respond to me on Twitter or Facebook or any of those other things. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, or if you don't, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also, tell your friends and family. Thank you.